So just as I was walking in here tonight, you're out, you know, it's such a beautiful night, right, with Venus, and it's so still and lovely, and then I walked in here, and it's really hard to imagine how wild it could be inside your little heads, <laughs> what's going on. Sometimes it can seem like so dissonant, one the other, and all of it, you know, is samsara. Anyway, um, my sense... Uh, at this point in the retreat, I mean, it kind of retreats, long retreats kind of go in a, in a wave. Not everybody's in the same place, but there's a kind of a, a flow that we can sometimes feel. And so my personal sense, my limited sense of just some of the people I've been meeting with is, you guys are cooking. And it's like it really may not be the recipe you thought you were ordering. <laughs> It certainly may not be the one you want. (laughs) But I just want to say, you know, that this is what the practice is. That it's easy to think uh, when, you know, we talk about the instructions and talk about the steadiness of awareness and all the subtleties of what we see. And then you just, you know, hit upside the head with uh, really... uh, at times, strong patterns of thought, memory, the emotions that go along with it, and in really intense waves. Has anybody experienced such a thing? And often that may come after you've started to feel a little calmer, started to feel there's a little more steadiness. Now, okay, I got it licked, and then suddenly, whop, you know. And as Pema Children says, it can be helpful to think, not so much that we're being with the, the unpleasant as with the unwanted. Because that helps us see what's really the, the suffering in the mind. I don't want this stuff. I want to look at intention. But instead, wave of memories that we may have had conscious access, but all of a sudden everything that we ever did that we feel remorse for. Or something triggers unworthiness and self-hatred and it just can come in like a cloud and start distorting every thought that comes. Or rage. Or guilt. Or grief. You know, and, and there's can be... All of it's valid. You know, and it's all... Often it's not new information, but the thoughts will come and then this flood of memories will come and together with the strong emotion that was generated at the time that it happened. And it goes in waves, of course. And you feel, can feel like, most people do feel like it's just, (laughs) this is kind of weird, but a yogi years ago used to come in and say to me, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. I think, what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, you get a drift of what it means. <laughs> What's a hand basket? You know, I'd get sidetracked in that. But, <laughs> but the sense of, this isn't what's supposed to be happening, and I'm certainly not growing in awareness and wisdom through this, you know. And uh, it's difficult. There's no question. We can feel like we're... We get filled with doubt, we get filled with self-recrimination, we get sidetracked into the story and the memories. We think, overwhelmed. You know, like someone said today, about to be overwhelmed. You know, this is, you can even be a little bit overwhelmed. But what we don't realize often, most of the time, everyone I've talked to, I'd say, anyway, I know that, 
you think it's just overwhelm and you're just lost and it gets so strong and you're feeling the grief or the anger or the rage or the remorse or whatever it is to the point that you need to go and just sob for a couple of hours. And our tendency is to think, well, you know, this has blown it and maybe somehow I can patch my practice back together. But this is what's happening at this moment. It's kind of these cycles of Someone reminded me of a way of speaking. Some of, there's cycles of purification of heart and mind and then the purity, kind of, the two go back and forth. The purification in a way is when all this stuff is coming up. You feel you're being overwhelmed, but there's really mindfulness still running through it. You, you, we often don't recognize because the emotions and the thoughts are a lot stronger than the mindfulness, but we're still meeting it. With awareness, there's a shift in how we're being with it from our regular daily life. And in fact, it's coming up so strong, deeper into retreat, as a result, I mean, this happens all the time, as a result of mindfulness and concentration as the mind gets purer, the conscious or unconscious habits of, of, of kind of keeping stuff down aren't being fed, and boom, boom. But it comes... And I remember one retreat I was sitting with Sayada Upandita, who has probably a very tough taskmaster. You come in, you report, note, 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 you know how it's supposed to be. And I, have, I had utmost confidence in him, and uh, I really felt his deep compassion. So I wasn't really afraid of him somehow in the interview. Every other time, yeah, but not in the interview. And I was going, I was having one of these times that went on off and on, not, nothing steady state for days, where a memory would come up and a kind of a grief and a loss and I would just be sobbing, sobbing. And I would be noting sobbing. And I'd go and just describe what happened. I wouldn't give the story. I'd just describe what happened. And he was like so happy. Because he goes, this is dukkha. This is understanding dukkha. Just what Bonnie talked about last night. We would like it if we get these little messages, oh, dukkha, dukkha, now I get it, it's like that, la, 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 that's a little bit dukkha, I see, it's suffering. <laughs> yeah, right. It doesn't work like that. And we don't really see what's, what's feeding it until we're just spinning in it. And then we pop out. You know, and the mind calms down, something else goes on, you're just kind of eating lunch and tasting that little burst of flavor or whatever. And then there can be a period that's, you know, more calm where you're just feeling the breath or watching the walking steps. And that's a kind of like the purity of mind in that time where the mind isn't so distorted by the fear, by the kalatia, by the self-judgment. And they support one another. So I just want to say this is happening for many people and it's a very uh, important part of the practice. Just seeing how changeable it is from the purification to the purity, from contraction to expansion, from wild west, you know, to, oh yeah, la, 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 just feeling the lifting and feeling the pressure. And you think, it's like nature, right? Just changeable. How could it be otherwise? And so what I want to speak about tonight actually is um, two qualities of mind that can help support two wholesome qualities, there's many wholesome qualities, that come along with mindfulness that we can, I just want to kind of call our attention to them to support us. 
because there's times when it's going wild like this, or you're bored out of your mind, that could be it too. And there's mindfulness, there's awareness, you know, we're pulling it along, but it doesn't, it could use some support, right? It could use some support. It's getting some support. But I want us to, you know, just tonight I want to talk about these two qualities just to help us recognize. um, Because the way this works, these huge, like, firestorms, and then it passes, it's calmer, then the firestorm may come up again. Have you noticed? It's, It's the same stuff, but maybe it's a little bit less intense. It's not that these patterns, don't expect them to completely go away. Please. Or if you do expect that, Notice it, and don't give it a lot of energy, okay? (laughs) But what does go away is the stickiness. It's like the Velcro, the me, me, me. You know how Velcro starts to get worn out, and then it doesn't really stick, and then, you know, the thing comes, and it just doesn't stick at all. It's like that. So I can feel like a wave of self-hatred coming in. That's one of my favorite friends. And, you know, if I don't recognize it, it's distorting everything, every thought I have. I can, I can kind of now feel it coming in like a wave. I can see what triggered it. And, and without having to analyze my whole history, I know it. It's enough already. I can just feel it coming in. And sometimes the immediate cause is, is, is just that my mind is tired. You know, I don't have to go looking for a big thing. You feel it come like a wave and go, okay. Self-hatred's here now. Feels like this. Don't trust anything your mind tells you as long as it's, you know, got the blinders on. Okay, that's how it is. Nothing personal passes out. So, the two mental factors, qualities of mind I want to just point us to, to say a little bit about tonight are sada, usually translated as faith, and aditana, um, which Bhante spoke about, translated usually as resolution or determination. And I'm going to speak about them tonight, hopefully quite specifically, in terms of recognizing them in our heart and mind, how they can support our practice here. Because they're both really huge topics, and we can, there's so much to say about each one. So I'm really being quite specific in, in the way I want to speak about them tonight. Seeing them, they're allies, allies of mindfulness, and not only, of course, in the difficult times, in the unwanted times, but in the unwanted times when we can't quite find the strength of mindfulness, we can sometimes find these. Other times, too. So... Mental factors, what do I mean by how does that work? First, I just want to mention, we keep talking about the mind. The mind does this, the mind sees that. And in listening myself, I hear, maybe you don't hear it this way, but I hear how it could easily sound as though the mind is some steady thing that's doing stuff and recognizing as, you know, some kind of blob usually up here but wherever it is, as if it's a a thing. But to point out the mind, what we're calling the mind is actually a dynamic process. In itself, it's a dynamic process that's cognizing the flow of events. It's not a steady state thing here, 
kind of cognizing the mind itself. This is uh, Usila Nanda, who was a, um, a Burmese Sayadaw scholar. He spent quite some time in California. He's passed on now. So he's describing the Abhidham, the two component aspects of what we call mind in this form is consciousness. Remember, this is a test. Guy spoke about consciousness, one of the five aggregates, vinyana. Yeah, you remember that? <laughs> it's just that natural knowing faculty, right? Just very simple, consciousness. That's arising in every moment of contact. And consciousness is that which is aware of an object, the basic, um, this is Silananda again, the basic awareness of an object. And the other component part of the mind are all the mental factors that are arising in that moment, in that consciousness. Silananda, Usilananda. Mental factors are what influence a moment of consciousness. They arise together with the consciousness and modify it. So really what we're calling mind is this moment-to-moment arising of vijnana consciousness and various mental factors, whole bunches of them coming together. What we're calling an unwholesome mind state is when, you know, the mental factors are kind of led by greed or aversion or hatred or fear, confusion, you know, not knowing what's going on. Wholesome mind state, those are absent. It could be led by compassion, could be led by mindfulness, could be led by uh, concentration. But they come with several of them together, you know, not all by itself. So I just want to say that. So that's in the, in the way that I'm talking. Faith, sada, uh, aditana, resolution, determination, are mental factors. Qualities of mind that arise together with mindfulness and other wholesome states. And so they're not by themselves, but sometimes they're the stronger one. We can recognize them. And like, for instance, one moment of chit. Chit is a word that includes consciousness and the mental factors together, a moment of chitta. So one moment of chitta, say, with, with, mind, with sati, with mindfulness and wholesome qualities, makes it more likely that that'll influence the next moment. Hence, continuity is really helpful. It starts to build up the momentum. Same way when the Buddha says what we, what we habitually ponder and think about, that becomes the inclination of the mind, right? It's, just, it's like the laws of physics, like inertia, you know? A body in motion tends to stay in motion. We, we kick the wheel of mindfulness, it's easier to go. We jump on the wheel of aversion, it's easier to roll. You know, it's nothing personal. That's what's so interesting to watch. Okay, so that's the way I want to talk about these in terms of recognizing the quality, what their effect is in our own mind, in our practice, a little, just a little bit. So faith, sada. First, thing, the main first thing I want to say is that word. Many people in English have various um, relationships, reactions to that word. Some very positive, some not so comfortable. So faith, sada, as a mental factor, as we experience it in our mind, it's not about believing something. 
Often we hear, and it's often talked about if you're reading the sutta, sada is faith in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And they can easily come to think, I have to believe these right view and the whole list of things and what the Buddha and the Dhamma and the, and the, the philosophy to become a card-carrying Buddhist, and that's what faith means. And we can get, I don't know, people can have different reactions. But in one retreat a couple years ago, one of the teachers mentioned faith. We didn't, wasn't in terms of you've got to believe this, just mentioned faith as a wholesome supportive factor. <laughs> and in the questions and answers the next day, a man said, so you mentioned the F word, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> for you non-English speakers, I can't really elaborate, but it's, it's not a good thing. Right? <laughs> it's a word you don't really want to say. It's not a nice word. Um, it's sort of like Schweinehund. <laughs> it starts with F. <laughs> and uh, that illustrated his relationship to the concept of faith, right, from his past history. That's not what we mean in terms of a mental factor. It's a practical, experiential factor that uplifts and brightens the heart and mind. It brings this quality, really, of brightness, expansiveness, energy. And it's essential in the way that the Buddha described the path. When he talks about the five spiritual faculties, which are five qualities of mind that really, when, we, when, when there's the momentum of mindfulness, when we talk about kind of intelligent awareness, All those five faculties are there together in some degree, not always balanced. The first one is sata, is faith, which leads to virya, effort, energy, to sati, mindfulness, to samadhi, balance, collectedness of mind, to panya, wisdom. And they cycle around, circle around, and support one another. So it's not like faith is just kind of like a nice thing, you know, that it it serves a very you know, essential function in our onward leading on the path in our practice. So the Abhidhamma can be interesting in terms of they have descriptions of what each of the mental factors, what they feel like, how they are in our experience. I'll just read a little of Sata. It has the characteristic of trusting. Its function is to clarify as when a muddy lake becomes clear. So you can see the difference between doubt and faith, right? Doubt, what's going on? What should I do in faith? Oh, it's like this. There's a brightness, a clarity. Or to set forth, as one might set forth to cross a flood. Upandita, Saida Upandita would describe this quality, this aspect of sadha, as a willingness to do. That's how he would describe the effect of sata. It gives a willingness to do in the mind. To do what? To show up for the next moment. You know, it's like it's that brightness, that energy. And it manifests as non fogginess, as confidence, or as resolution. So you can see these are really supportive qualities, confidence resolution, willingness to do, which is how it leads into virya, into energy, into willingness to just keep showing up. And 
this uplift, this brightening of the heart and mind is actually what enables one to even begin to, it purifies in that moment, in that moment, just for a moment, the heart and mind so that we can actually hear the Dhamma, so we can hear how things are. When we're clouded with, or distorted and clouded with confusion and with longing or aversion, we can hear the Dhamma, but doesn't really quite get in. Have you ever, has it ever happened that you've heard something that you've heard a million times before, Dhamma-wise, I mean, you go, oh, that's what that means, you know? And it, and it can keep happening on deeper and deeper levels, you know, as the mind is, is brighter, is clearer. So this is a, a key aspect of our own practice, of our own path. And there's many um, suttas where the Buddha, when he begins to give instructions to someone, he looks through, often he looks through a, an assembly, you know, that amazing mind he has. Okay, who here is ready to hear the Dhamma? Who here is ready to hear how it is? The mind is ready. And he'll look and see, and often like there's one sutta where there's a poor... A beggar who's afflicted with leprosy who comes to the edge of the sangha because he thinks, oh good, here's a big group of people. Maybe somebody's given out some food. And he came and he sits down and he sees it's the Buddha. He goes, oh, nobody's given out food. But I might as well just sit and listen. And the Buddha looks out and goes, this guy, Super Buddha was his name, he's ready to hear the Dhamma. You know, so he looks. He looks, and he's not. It's not about anybody's, you know, state in life, or how rich or poor, or their background, or, or their gender, or anything. He just looks at them. Like, this person's ready to hear, but then he just doesn't start by blasting them with anatta. You know, <laughs> he kind of, uh, he kind of, he always starts by gradual teachings to bring someone in their mind. And he talks about generosity. He talks about sila. He he does things. To, he talks about different aspects of uh, conditions and karma and renunciation. In order to brighten the mind, the mind becomes bright, purified, pliable free from hindrances, and then it's able to hear the Dhamma in that moment. So, in a little bit of a way like that, sadha has that function in our mind in moments. And so, in terms of faith, it's said the, the immediate cause is something that inspires, that arises, that arouses that faith, something to place faith in. So again, classically in the suttas, it's the the three refuges, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, which Bonnie talked about so lovely the other night. But it doesn't have to be that. That's where we get sucked into the object again and think I have to have faith in that. But it's about looking in, and I just want to suggest, I want to drop it in for you, to, to now as you go through the day, tune into, maybe, and hopefully you already know, what is it that inspires, that re-inspires, that deepens, that you can access your own faith? Faith in terms of what brightens your mind in the difficult times. What uh, helps you remember or strengthens a sense of trust and confidence in whether the confidence, then it depends how your mind works, whether it's in the teachings, whether it's in the Buddha, whether it's in your own verified experience, which is called verified faith whether it's in someone that's really inspired you and thinking about them, it's going to call bright faith, brings, up, it brings it up again. Look and see. There's not a right thing, 
but knowing what it is for you. Again, we're talking in terms of um, this practice, of awakening practice. It's not like, you know, you're into Formula One and you think about a certain kind of car and it brightens your mind, okay? We're not talking that. just have to be sure it's all clear. But to look for yourself, this is it's really important. Another... Um, so faith isn't about having to believe a set of beliefs. Okay? okay. Another aspect of faith that's true for some people, but it doesn't have to be, is, is sometimes uh, sada is... Um, what's the word? Thought of as synonymous with devotion. And you, you, you probably notice here in this particular place, the way we're teaching devotion isn't a huge aspect of how, how we're teaching which is, is more reflective of us than anything else. But um, faith is often uh, this sada, this brightness, this willingness to do this confidence is often inspired and strengthened by this quality of devotion, which uh, can be this, this real sense of placing one's heart upon being inspired by a teacher by the Sangha, or by thinking about the Dhamma. And, um, but it doesn't have to be that. Because we're all different kind of personality types. Um, a while ago, some of us were uh, having a, a group discussion with Ajahn Suchito, who is uh, an Englishman, again, monk in the Amarvati tradition from the followers of Ajahn Chah. Uh, he's one of the followers of, of Ajahn Sumedho, a really lovely and I found quite inspiring and, you know, deep guy. He's been a monk for 35 years, I think. So we were just having a discussion and it was a bunch of Western Vipassana teachers and him. And so he was kind of saying we'd been sitting a retreat with him. And so in uh, those, the, those style of monastic retreats, there's uh, just a more natural emphasis on devotion, which manifests by chanting, chanting a lot of the... Uh, the homage to the Buddha, the qualities of the Buddha, chanting the qualities of the Dhamma, the qualities of the Sangha, you know, a lot of that. And just kind of, you know, bringing that to heart, to mind over and over. And uh, people at those retreats love it. And he was saying to us, well, what do you all do to inspire faith? Because here these people love it so much and, and you don't do it, you know, and, and the people that come here love it. And we said, yeah, they're the ones who come here. You know, and in, in some of the retreats we do, there's people who really miss that devotional element for sure. And there's other people like that guy who talked about faith as an F word, you know. There isn't a right or a wrong. And so I'm, I'm just, you know, encouraging you to look and see for yourselves what lights you up. Devotion, it may be um, the qualities of the Buddha or the Dhamma or Sangha teachers. But I'm, I just want to encourage you to tune into what's been, if you're devotional, since we're in that, what, what lights it up for you? Who've been your own teachers, your own inspirations? It doesn't have to be a Buddhist person, you know. But wh- whatever it is that really lights you up and, and brings that energy, that cohesive energy, that brightness in mind kind of purifies the heart to keep you on the path for the next moment. And 
sometimes it's surprising where it can come from. I don't particularly think of myself as a devotional type, although I have to say it tends to come in more and more over the years. So now I find in my little house I have photos of some teachers who've just really been meaningful and inspired me. And um, Ramana Maharshi, who you know, uh, may know as an, an Indian uh, saint in southern India, who died in 1950, I mean, before I was even born. But lots of photos of him have kind of around the house, and when my mind's all caught up and the Velcro's really working well, you know, I just kind of look at a photo. It's hard to stay all worked up when I look at a photo of Ramana, you know, he's just... But even more surprising to me, I'm just giving this as an example. Several times I've gone to Tirvanamalai, his ashram in, um, in Tamil Nadu in southern India. And he went there when, after his awakening, whatever, when he was 16, 19 years old, because he was drawn to the mountain, Arunachala, as a holy mountain, an inspirational mountain to him. And it's like, as you, as you come up to it, it's just flat, flat. And then there's just, I mean, mountains stretching it, but it's a big hill coming up, you know, in the middle of flat. And he spent the whole rest of his life there. Built his ashram around it and really felt that, that it was all about Arunachala, all about the mountain. So, okay, fine, you know. So I went to the ashram, which is a lovely ashram, really well organized, and I, I really like being there. And over time... It's like the mountain just starts coming in, coming in. You just look at the mountain. And there's a saying, Ramana said, you know, Arunachala, thou dost root out the ego of those who hold thee in thy heart, something like that. I go, yeah, right, because I'm from New York. I'm a cynic. It's like, yeah, right, the mountain's rooting out ego in my heart. Give me a break. Um, (laughs) Mountain's just sitting there. Well, I have a, a long photo of Arunachala on my altar, which I look at every day, and I, don't, I cannot explain it. But luckily with Sada, you don't have to explain it. You just look at what's the effect. It brightens. I'm getting chills talking about it. I have no clue why. But when I tune in, it's the effect of Sada. It brightens my mind and heart in that, in that moment. There's an energy, an uplift, an openness, a willingness to just look at what's going on. You know, it's really quite amazing. So look and see what's true for you in that way. The Buddha talked, um, the various suttas, I'm I'm just going to um, briefly mention a part of one sutta, where he talks about various kinds of followers. But in terms of what I'm speaking of here, it comes down to to two types of followers who are not yet completely enlightened, right? So he says, what is an individual who is a Dhamma follower? This is the case where someone, they're not awakened, but with a, a certain degree of reflection through wisdom, she has come to uh, an understanding, an agreement with the teachings proclaimed by the Tathagata. In other words, you really looked at thought about it, and it makes sense. You've kind of taken the teachings into your own mind and heart. I would call it a wisdom follower, you know, or investigation walla, if you want to go in, into that language. And this person has these 
these qualities, see if you recognize them. The faculty of conviction, or sada. The faculty of persistence, or virya, energy. The faculty of mindfulness, of concentration, and of wisdom. So the five spiritual faculties, beginning with conviction. But this is a wisdom follower. And then he says there's another type of individual who is a faith follower, a sada follower. And this particular individual, not yet awakened, but having seen with discernment, is a measure of conviction, of faith in, and love for the Buddha. And I would add the Dhamma, the Sangha, whatever your particular faith in and love for is. And he has these five qualities, the five spiritual faculties. So I just kind of appreciated that, you know? The Buddha just noticing there's these different ways. Both of them arouse faith, sadha, this conviction, which is onward leading to the other five spiritual faculties. So just seeing what's our personality type, what works for us. In the, the Dhamma follower, which I always thought I was more of, but I, maybe not. <laughs> we all have kind of both of it too. It tends to be, for me, that, that what really can bring that, that brightness, that lighting up in the mind, is kind of just starting to see how things work, getting a sense of insight, just noticing. And this is true for everybody, what we call verified faith. When you have an experience that confirms some of what we've been understanding and it just happens by itself, you know, and they're oh, wow, that's really true. So many people have said that. Example of where quite a few people have told me this kind of experience where some really familiar, unwholesome train of thought starts. You've been watching it, fighting with it, whatever. It starts up, awareness comes and notices it, and all of a sudden the mind, the wisdom, nah, let's not do that now. And it just vanishes, right? And you didn't do it. Wow, wow. Notice that. That's really, can lead to verified faith. Kind of, oh yes, this Dhamma makes sense. I can see it's actually occurring the way that I've read about it. So it moves from just intellectually, yeah, it makes sense, to actually noticing. The Buddha talks about the importance, really, of why it's really beneficial to know, to let others know and to know for yourself that real awakening is possible. That it's not just some kind of cockamamie idea, you know, to keep us being mindful. That (laughs) it really is, as he so often said, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. And so a moment when your heart-mind is pure, freed from the defilements, the kalatia, that's just like a little mini doorway in. But to really know that that's possible is really, he says, it's really important, not just for, you know, you don't talk about it or describe people who've awakened just for flattery or for anything, but because there are faithful people who are inspired and gladdened by what is possible. If we never hear about it, we can never know. There's a lovely book by um, Ajahn Pasano and Amaro called The Island, which is a, a compilation of many, many suttas and other teachings uh, all about 
um, all aspects of the quality of Sotapanna, the first level of awakening in the Theravada schema of things. Really well organized, lots of um, sutta references and their own um, commentary. But what I'm going to quote is the thing that they have, the very last quotation in the book from Yogi Berra. Do any of you remember who Yogi Berra was? You you non-Americans will have no clue. But he was, I'm probably going to get it wrong. He was a baseball player and baseball manager of the Yankees. I don't know if it was in the 50s or the 60s. When was it? In the, in the 70s. In the 70s? Okay. Anyway, and he would, he's getting well, he was kind of well known for all these kind of statements he would make that, that, that kind of don't make sense, but if you think about them, they do. So this is their last quotation. Yogi Berra, if you don't know where you're going, you will wind up somewhere else. So, uh, wisdom follower to have a sense of the Dhamma. Faith, no, I'm going to have to make this shorter. Faith follower, again, seeing what we can bring in, we can act actively bring in when we notice we're, we're caught, when the difficult situations are just too strong, we're caught in the negativity and the fear. What can we use to brighten our mind? If, if it's reflections on qualities of the Buddha, qualities of the Dhamma, qualities of the Sangha, if that brightens you, you bring it in. There's suttas where the Buddha talks about directed and undirected meditation. It talks about when you're meditating, and oh, let me see where it is. I don't want to read the whole thing, but okay, you're, you're meditating. A monk is abiding, contemplating, body is body, ardent, fully aware, mindful. You've heard that before, right? And a a bodily distress arises, or a mental sluggishness that scatters the mind. See, he knew this stuff happened. Then one should direct, so you're just really lost, not a momentary sluggishness. This isn't about, this is skillful means, not running away. Um... Then one should direct the mind to some inspiring object. The, refu- the three refuges, but also your own, your own generosity, your own sila, your own non-harming conduct. These are important aspects of contemplation that bring up faith and brighten the mind. And he says then... Um, when the mind is directed to some inspiring quality, happiness is born. From this happiness comes joy. With a joyful mind, the body relaxes. With relaxed body feels content, and the mind of one content becomes collected. Then he recollects, the purpose for which I directed my mind has been accomplished. The mind has been brightened, purified. So I withdraw attention from that particular inspiring object, and go back to your undirected, choiceless awareness. So see, this is actually a skillful use of thought, of contemplation, and it's what it's doing is inspiring faith. So you can see how this inspiration of faith is onward leading this willingness to do this quality of virya, of effort, And that leads to the next 
uh, uh, mental factor I want to talk about, determination, aditana. It's not the same as virya, effort, but you can see how it comes together with it. Resolution, various descri- variously described as, um, uh, Tanisaru Bhikkhu describes it as, resolution in the mind, it gives a, a focus, a motivation and a direction to the practice, he says, but I want to say just in a moment, we can kind of recognize it. Almas describes it as unwavering in the face of disappointment and discouragement. And this, it's one of the ten paramis, one of the ten perfections, resolution, determination. And it's a very strong, uh, it can be a very strong force to support virya and support our practice. And I feel for personally, I didn't really, I didn't hear it talked about too much in the way of moment-to-moment awareness in my mind and how it could support it. Until the last few years, I've kind of been exploring it more in my own experience. It's often talked about in the big picture of over lifetimes, where um, in so-called the legend is in the previous era, the previous Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, which is like so long ago, you know, in another world series, another lifetime, there was an ascetic called Sumedha who was so inspired by that Buddha that he made the resolution, the Aditana, that however long it would take, he too would become a Buddha, go through all the necessary wisdom, practice, purification of heart and mind, so that he too could be of so much benefit to beings. And so this is the vast picture, you know. And then all the, if you if you read the... Um, the whole collection of the Tipitaka of the Buddhist texts. There's a whole series called Jataka Tales, which is supposedly all these stories of all the different lifetimes of the Buddha, the historical Buddha we know of, Gotama Buddha, and all the different lifetimes and the ways he was working to purify his heart and mind. That's the long view. I'm talking moment-to-moment view tonight, just to give you a sense of, I'm just taking a little slice but to really start to recognize. And when we recognize the wholesome, you know, the mind it can, be, that can more easily incline towards that wholesome. And so when we talk about the qualities of courage, of perseverance, the willingness, ability to be with the difficult, but not with striving, Right? To really keep being there, but then we say, but not striving, not expecting, not pushing. Or when we talk about um, choosing not to feed the unwholesome, but inclining the mind towards the wholesome, where some series of difficult thoughts come up, you know, and we've been fighting it, but then we go, no, not now. And this quality of strength that isn't isn't, um, coming from either aversion or clinging or meing. So what is that? How do we access that? That kind of can be a, a tricky place, no? This is one of the places that we can start to feel this mental factor, this energy of resolution. It's really what we can call on for skillful means. The best I can describe it in myself is I feel it in a moment as a kind of a collectedness and alignment of energy 
around a particular motivation. I'm going to take a really simple example. Um, waking up and being in bed in the, mo- in the morning and having to get up. Well, that happens every day. But, you know, there's the state where, whether you're on retreat or not, but let's see, on retreat, you wake up, it's not the alarm, and you're kind of lying there, should I, shouldn't I, aversion, you're kind of fluffing around, that's what I call it, fluffing around, it's so cozy in the bed, I'm all snuggled in, should I get up, shouldn't I get up, right? And I shouldn't, aversion and all of this. And then, for me, the resolution is, the, the thought, the intention comes, just get up. Not just get up, you stupid lazy just get up. <laughs> and the resolution is in that moment, the energy just all, and just get up and you just do it. You just do it. Ajahn, uh, not Ajahn, Sayadaw Tejaniya often says that, just do it. In fact, sometimes, I don't have it, he'll just hold up a big sheet of paper with a Nike swoosh. <laughs> he'll just go, oh, just hold it up. You know? <laughs> just, just do it. Rather than this dithering, you know, and so it's a it's different from forcing. It's different from doing it from aversion, but it really counteracts what I call flabbiness of mind. You know, this kind of which we can, you know, I, I know none of you would make this mistake, but the the sense of feeling just being with whatever is so I'm lying in bed okay there's aversion yeah there's tiredness yeah it's snuggly it's nice okay snuggly nice feels like this yeah 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 just do it get up you know you can feel the difference and the first one you think oh that's just being choicelessly aware <laughs> Yeah, uh-huh. there's a certain place for inclining to the wholesome. <laughs> I'm picking a simple thing, but this is really where we can explore this stuff. So, aditana, resolution, as you can see, it's, it's a factor that um, could be called ethically neutral, meaning that quality of collecting around uh, a motivation, just doing it, doesn't have to be around a wholesome thing. You know, I don't have to elaborate on that. That's how, how many things get done. But in terms of uh, Dhamma practice, of course, <laughs> it is wholesome because it comes together with mindfulness, it comes together with wholesome fac- faculties. So I want to describe um, as a parami and don't get all crazy trying to remember, but just the kind of four wholesome qualities that come together with resolution, with aditana. And I'll just give a simple example, kind of how we can see how they're supporting one another and the different from just kind of a forcing. Because it can be tricky. We can think it's just simple resolution, but it's got that forcing quality. We all know how subtle that is. So these four qualities that come together with it are, are wisdom, panya, wise discernment. Honesty, relinquishment, non-clinging, and calm or peace. And let me just give a simple example how they go together. So in terms of wisdom, wise discernment, just even beginning as a resolution comes up in the mind, whether it's even reasonable. Like I always thought it was very interesting, the story of the Buddha. He made this great determination to sit under the Bodhi tree and I'm not getting up until I'm awakened. But he'd been doing intensive practice for six years before he did that. 
He didn't do that on day one. So there was some sense of clear, wise discernment. So for us, we won't always know. But for example, say you say, I'm really going to sit for 17 hours straight without moving. Now, for some people at some times, that is quite possible and supportive. For a lot of us, a lot of the time, not so much. Knowing that, just knowing what's reasonable. Take another example. We often will recommend to people, just as a way of of, um, settling and strengthening the continuity, to take a, a period, if you're not already doing this, maybe you're all already doing this, Take a period like the morning from the 8.15 sit until lunch or from after lunch until tea and just stay really steady. Sit, walk, sit, walk, don't do anything else. That's all. Not within, just do that. Now one could make a, a, a resolution. I'm just going to sit, walk, sit, walk. I would say generally with discernment, does that seem reasonable? Does it seem useful? You don't have to like write a thesis about it, just you know, checking in and seeing. So that's the discernment part. And the truthfulness, the honesty, is just kind of being honest with seeing what we're really doing. So if we make that, that, that resolution, just very gently, and we're doing this, okay, well, I'm just going to go and have this little cup of tea and come back, and we somehow pretend we're not doing that. You know what I mean? We just kind of, that didn't count. It's not quite the, the, the clear seeing, the honesty piece, that's all. Honesty is just part of mindfulness anyway, what's really happening. The relinquishment is kind of obvious because when there's a, a resolution to do one thing, we're relinquishing other possibilities. Getting up in the morning is relinquishing more snuggling in bed. Sit, walk, sit, walk for four hours is relinquishing whatever else. Just very basic. And the fourth, which is interesting, is calm. And this I find one of the useful ways, if I'm not clear if this is a resolution or kind of forcing or aversion. So, uh, for example, sitting and there's a difficult experience. Let's just take pain in the body. And the idea comes in, I'm just going to stay with it, see what happens. Well, you know all the different energies that could be feeding that motivation, right? And so if it's just the clear seeing, if it's the aditana, there'd be the discernment, okay, it's not that I have a bad knee and I'm going to hurt the knee. That's clear seeing, you know? And I know people that have hurt their knee with, from not using that discernment. Uh, that's different from fear and <laughs> discernment. And the honesty, okay, just be with it and see what happens. And um, relinquishing moving. But the calm is, when, when it's from this resolution, all the energy just collects, it's just steady, just do it. There's not all this wavering, aversion, this forcing, you know, should I, shouldn't I, I'm doing so great, I'm doing so bad, by gum, I'm not going to move, you know, all that extra stuff that leads to agitation of mind, agitation of body. And when it's a sense of resolution, it's like, all the extra energy that's just floating all over the place just comes together in that, oh yeah, just do it. Just for that moment, it's quite calm. And so that's something you could just kind of tune into. Wisdom, truth, relinquishment, and calm. And so really, I I just want to encourage learning to and getting interested in exploring this in little ways in our practice. Because the more we recognize these wholesome states, the more easily 
the next moment of chitta of mind inclines towards it. And you know how we can remember a wholesome state and kind of call it up. We can use it. And the faith, our confidence, the willingness to do, gives us the trust also that the resolution is possible, that we can do this. Let's give a couple of examples, kind of to close. So one, a personal one, and it's to show that this isn't just about being on retreat. Where I really was consciously working with, I've learned so much about this quality from this, this experience, which was about, I don't know, two or three years ago. I had a, a summer, I took some months off of teaching, and I arranged to study German for, for three to four weeks in, in Munich. And I've been wanting to do this for a long time. My German friends may wonder, talking about resolution after 20 years, you know, resolution of learning German was noticeably lacking. But anyway, then I decided I really wanted to do this. So I set it all up. I was in this class. I came in uh, a few days late. They didn't put me in the beginning class. They put me in the next to the beginning from some little test I took. But the little knowledge I had of German was just very spotty from hanging out, you know, no kind of clear grammar or anything. Anyway, I was in this class. I came in a few days late. And I was all, like, happy I was staying with a friend in Munich, and I loved being there, and, you know, everything was great. And I come in, and from the first moment, I didn't have a clue what was going on. I came in, and um, the class was not big, maybe 18 kids, that's the operative word, (laughs) age 16 to 23, and me. And it was a really interesting group from all over, Uh, a couple of young men from Turkey, from Spain, from Mexico, from Portugal, from Denmark, from Mozambique, you know, and all there really like wanting to learn German, to come and study mostly, to enhance their careers, you know. So it's a really interesting group of kids, kids. And um, so right away, I felt really, you know, I looked around. Huh. And then we had to do like a lot of like work in pairs. And, <laughs> and, and I really came in. And so, of course, the instructor's talking in German. And I like, for the first day, I went into total panic. I had no clue what he was saying. We're supposed to do these exercises. I'm like, what are we supposed to do? And so much stuff got triggered in me that, you know, really just like what's going on for you guys here, all kinds of inadequacy and feeling old. I don't usually feel old. I felt old, I tell you. And uh, being absolutely the worst in the class I was back in school. I was like, what is this? I was just doing this for fun. And I was really, really in a panic. And, um, and just as an aside, I see putting... I, I, I find how valuable it is to put oneself in situations like that where we're outside of our comfort zone because we really learn. I, first, I got so much more respect in a way, for, for, for all these people, you know, immigrants, the people coming from other countries, immigrating to a country for a refugee or for economic or whatever, and can't speak the language, and the general people aren't that helpful, and just what, what it is to go through that. You know, growing up um, a white American in suburbia, everybody around me spoke English. I never had to give it a thought. 
And I spend a lot of time in Europe, and I, I feel humiliated like two-thirds of the time when I'm hanging out with my Swiss friends. It's like, okay, what language do we want to speak? French, German, English, Schweizerdeutsch, you know, or maybe I could go into Italian. So, well, here I am. It's going to be English, you know. <laughs> Pretty clear it's going to be English. So this, this sense of real appreciation for people that have to. That was one thing. Um, and the other was what it's like, you know, not to be able to learn so easily or to know what's going on or to read so easily. That hadn't been my particular problem in school. It was here. So just appreciating that, you know, getting outside of the comfort zone. So anyway, it was amazing to me the emotional stuff that was getting brought up. You know, we'd be paired and and I knew no one wanted to work with Granny because... (laughs) I mean, they were respectful, but I didn't know what the heck I was doing, basically. That's why they didn't want to work with me. You know, huh? What? <laughs> you know, half the time I wouldn't even understand the exercise. <laughs> you know, and still, you know, I'd learn stuff, and then I would spend all afternoon doing my homework. That's what I was there for. That was all fine. And then, you know, after the second day or so, I woke up and I go, why am I doing this? Nobody else cares. I'm doing this for me, and this is like horrendous. I could just cut and run. I'm, I'm not going to learn enough German that my German friends will even know the difference if I did it or not, you know. But then I thought, then this is really, and I really called, I said, no, this is for resolution. I'm just going to do it. And it became my practice. I said, I'm going to do it, and everything that comes up around it is the practice. So every morning I'd get up early, I'd sit, and, it, you know, every day's different. Some days I was fine, I just went down, it was kind of interesting. Some days I woke up in a panic. Some day I woke up just feeling like, you know, the stupidest person on earth. Some days, you know, whatever. But I just made, I'm going to do it, I'm going to be with whatever comes up. I'm not going late, I'm not leaving early, I'm not missing a day. That's just it, you know. And I learned so much about the power of resolution, and it brings us into the ability to be with all the other stuff that's going on. And really, what you know, you see the emptiness of all of it, of all of it. You know, you can do what's important to do, and the mind's doing all its stuff, and you're embarrassed. Okay, embarrassments like this, that's okay. You can make a choice for, you know, the greater good. So I, that was really a huge learning for me, really about this, this quality of determination. And then I'll just close with one other story of determination on a broader, bit broader, uh, some, uh, from the biography of someone, a teacher who really inspired me and many of my friends quite a bit. He uh, died just a few years ago. He's a, a Chinese Chan master, Master Sheng Yen. Uh, really very profound teacher but also in who he was, so kind, so relational. I had the, just had the good fortune to sit maybe two retreats with him, one in Switzerland, one in upstate New York in his center. And he's so kind. The second time I went, he has so many students, and he recognized me and called me by name right away. And then you find out in Taiwan, he has like a huge monastery with like thousands, tens of thousands of students and nuns and monks. He's huge. He's like, you know... Um, like the Thich Nhat Hanh of Taiwan. I mean, he's a huge teacher, but so kind and deep teachings. Anyway, so his, um, he wrote an autobiography, 
I'm just really condensing it. Very, so grew up in mainland China, uh, um, like born in the 20s, 30, 20s or so. Very hard life, a lot of suffering, not enough food, very harsh. And as a young man, he you know, became a monk in the Chan monasteries. And it was tough, really tough, you know, in terms of not even having enough food and working really hard and just the whole story. I won't go into the whole story, but he became a very devoted monk, very devoted to his practice, to um, being a monk. And in 1949, when, you know, so there was civil war then in, in China after, during some of this time too, which made conditions even worse. So in 1949, when Mao Zedong and the communists won the civil war, he was in, living in, in Shanghai in a, in a monastery, but he realized his only chance to remain a monk was to get out of mainland China to Taiwan. He had no money. He had nothing. The only way he could get out to Taiwan was to join uh, Chiang Kai-shek's army, and then they would bring him over to Taiwan. So that's what he did. He's a monk. He joined the army to get over to Taiwan And uh, so he had to disrobe, and he says, but in my mind, in my heart, I was always a monk. But it's not like he could just get over to Taiwan and go, thanks a lot, you know, buddy, I'm I'm disrobing now. I mean, I'm getting out of the army now. That was not an option at all. And he said it was extremely difficult to get out of the army. So for 10 years, he was in the army there, in his heart, always being a monk. One of his rules of training was to be vegetarian. And the food in the army wasn't vegetarian. So as much as he could, he would not eat the meat, he'd eat around the vegetables, until sometimes he was really starving, really unhealthy. And only at that point would he eat a little meat. You know? But then he would feel you know, that that was an unwholesome act. And for him, for him, the way that he kind of moved his unwholesome karma was by doing prostrations. So he would do lots of prostrations, not as a, like I'm bad, I have to do prostrations, but as a way of devotion, of bringing in wholesome energy in his mind. He had no teacher. He had no support. After some years, he began to find some teachers. And finally, without going to the whole story, somebody, and it was really unusual, helped him find a way to get out of the army after 10 years. And he said it was extremely unusual that anyone managed to get out of the army. But he got out of it and immediately went on a six-year retreat. And he says a quotation from him, Looking back, I realize that if I did not have a very strong determination to return to monastic life, I probably would not have succeeded Getting out of that particular branch of the military was nearly impossible. The determination, but just moment to moment, the determination to be a monk in his heart, you know. We never know where it's going to go. That may be what seems impossible can become possible with a combination of faith, determination, and of course our mindfulness practice. So, thank you. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. 